So I'm going to end the sermon with this concept, and there is an Old Testament word that describes God as Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, the God who restores, and we serve the God who restores and heals in a broken world. I'm going to talk about a very sensitive issue this morning. I'll try to make it PG-ish. I see some children here, but uh, it's about uh, the church being a community where there is safety and protection and accountability for those around us. As we study the book of Colossians, I've been overwhelmed with this thought that the primary thesis of the Apostle Paul as he combats the Colossian heresy and other issues is he wants the people to behold the beauty and the majesty of Christ, to see the, the greatness and the glory of the Lord. For example, chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, We've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, but faith in Christ and love for the saints because of the hope of heaven. Verse 9, he says, and, and, and this is our prayer, that you would be a people who are filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, continuously filled with the knowledge of the will and the character and the goodness of God. And then he says later in chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, <clears throat> Christ is the one who has made all things, and He's before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. He rejoices in verses 13 and 14 when he says, Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Behold the beauty and the majesty of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Behold the majesty of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the wonder of Christ. And he says, people talk about the mystery of God. Paul says, I will tell you the mystery that's now been revealed. The mystery that has now been revealed, verse 27, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Behold the majesty of Christ. See, great harm is done to our lives and our growth in the Lord when we do not behold the majesty of Christ in the gospel, the gospel of grace, to, to see Him and to know Him. I gave you this paradigm for several weeks now, but God is eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is gloriously good, and He loves us. God has spoken to us in His Word, and as we walk in His Word under the character of God, there is human flourishing and joy and thanksgiving. Behold the majesty of God. We had a funeral this week of a wonderful man, 95 years old, and at the funeral I quoted this <clears throat> from John Newton. Let me just read part of it. This in the worship God. Uh, wonderful are the effects when a crucified, glorious Savior is presented by the power of the Spirit in light of the Word, to the eye of faith. That's good theology. Wonderful are the effects when a crucified, glorious Savior is presented in the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to the eye of faith. This sight destroys the love of sin and heals the wounds of guilt. It softens the hard heart and it fills the soul with peace, life, and joy and makes obedience practical, desirable, and pleasant. 
If we could see this more, we should look less at other things. And then I was reading this week a statement by a guy named Ralph Erskine, who died in 1752. He was a younger brother of a guy named Ebenezer Erskine. Both were pastors in Scotland. <clears throat> and Ebenezer Erskine has a school named for him in Due West, South Carolina. Erskine College is named for Ebenezer Erskine. Congratulations, Erskine people. Anyway, his brother said this. This is his brother, Ralph. Thoughts of Christ are assimilating thoughts, sanctifying and transforming thoughts. They that see Christ cannot but love him and desire to be like him, for there is a infectious favor in his face. They that are in heaven are like him because they see him as he is. The thought that endears Christ will embitter sin. A man cannot think duly of the loveliness of Jesus Christ without thinking of the loathsomeness of sin. So we need to behold the beauty of Christ. And, and as we behold the beauty of Christ, and as we walk in the way of the Lord, as we understand the hope of heaven, then we come to this part that we've been dealing with the last few weeks, which talks about relationships in the home, where he says in verse 18 of chapter 3, wives submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. It's fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And so, so all of this is, is, is the, the application of beholding the beauty of Christ. You don't just jump into this and start browbeating people. You say, behold the glory and the beauty of Christ. You're, you're clothed with the things of God. You, you, you are, understand that Christ is all and in all. Verse 10, you, you've, you've put on the Christian armor, especially the belt of, of love that holds everything together in place. And behold the beauty and the glory of Christ. There's a statement, I'm going to talk about protecting those around us. There's a statement in the worship guide that says this, at the heart of mature masculinity is a benevolent sense or benevolent responsibility to lead for, to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. Uh, benevolent sense or responsibility to lead, provide for, and, and protect. So this, I'm going to say this 13 times today. I hope you get it. We're talking about the importance of safety. A safe environment, protection, and accountability. Safety, protection, and accountability. So in our, our moment now in history, we are grappling with gender, family, masculinity, femininity. Uh, I want to address a cultural moment that's an application of this passage. The Me Too movement has led to many questions and fears. People are saying, uh, what is the extent of this situation? Others are saying, who can be trusted? Some are saying, parents especially, are our children in environments of safety and nurture? 
We've seen cultural icons implicated and found guilty of abuse, including Bill Cosby and Kevin Spacey. Even this week in the state of Missouri, a man who Time Magazine said four years ago, before he was elected governor of Missouri, that he's one of the 100 up-and-coming leaders in America, a, a Duke graduate, a Rhodes Scholar, a Navy SEAL, who ran for governor and was elected. He had to resign in uh, shame because of an abusive attitude and immoral relationship with a woman who was not his wife. So every time you open the paper or read a website, you're confronted with this. This has also impacted the people who named the name of Christ as Lord for years. We have heard reports of abuse in the Catholic Church, especially towards children. And this has been referred to as their problem. The findings have been horrific and the financial settlements staggering. In the year 2007, the Los Angeles Diocese settled with 508 victims, 508 now, who've been abused, the report says, for decades. And the sum of settlement was $650 million. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal this week by a Jesuit priest who is editor of a Catholic magazine. I'm just reading a couple of statements. He says this. Pope Francis recently had a three-day summit with 34 Chilean Catholic bishops and two cardinals from the country of Chile to discuss cover-ups of sexual abuse committed by their nation's clergy. That's a key word, cover-up. That's a word you'll hear. The saga began in 2011 when the Vatican removed Fernando Caradima, a prominent Chilean priest from ministry for having abused minors. Several victims accused Bishop Juan Barros, a Caradina, protege of having witnessed the abuse and doing nothing to stop it. Again, doing nothing. This is the first time a group of bishops has been called to the Vatican to answer for mishandling sexual abuse. In 2002, Pope John Paul II summoned every U.S. Cardinal to Rome after revelations of clergy abuse starting in the Archdiocese of Boston, which convulsed the American church. And he says this, the missing link in the church's response to the sexual abuse crisis has been the accountability of bishops. Once again, safety, protection, accountability. Boston, some of you remember that. I have not seen the movie that dealt with that, but in Boston there were five men who were convicted and sent to prison priest who abused children uh, the record said there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children. One man was accused of, of uh, abusing 137 boys. 137. Another priest was known to be the keynote speaker at a rally that started something called NAMBA, which is the North American Man and Boy Love Association, which is a perversion. And a priest spoke at that in favor of it, which says it's okay to be with little boys. Why he wasn't fired on the spot, defrocked, and sent to Siberia, I do not know. We do know this. 
that in many instances a pedophile priest was moved from one church to the next and this church was never told why he was being moved. It's, it's, beyond, it's beyond imagination. One thing I'm going to say is we can never have a circle the wagon mentality. We just can't. So priest was transferred, pedophile. It, it was, it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Now, is that, was that the majority of the Catholic Church? No. But that it happened at all is, is horrific. Destruction and betrayal. But now I want to address issues much closer to us and our evangelical identity. Just a few examples, and the last is more, most pertinent. That there's a well-known Chicago pastor who has had to resign his ministry after several decades of fruitful ministry because he's been accused and it's found to be true that they have um, improper attitudes towards women. I, I'm not, I don't think he's been accused of adultery, but just the way he tried to seduce and the way he talked and the way he handled women, the way he approached them uh, was horrific. A, a well-known pastor, a very well-known pastor. In her own denomination, there's a man from this state who was a pastor who became head of a very significant committee in the Southern Baptist Convention, and he resigned a few months ago at 10 o'clock in the morning, and he said, I'm just a little bit too old to do this, and people had wrote in and said, thank you for your service, and, and then five hours later, he came out with another email that said, I've got to be honest, uh, the reason I'm resigning is because I'm having or have had an inappropriate sexual relationship with a woman who's not my wife. And I think his wife forced him to send that quite honestly. More recently, a seminary professor, now a former seminary president, excuse me, from the seminary that I went to, um, a man that I respect and care for, I advised a woman trapped in a home where there was an abusive physical relationship to go back into the home, which we should never do. And later did not protect a woman, and now we know two women who came to him with rape accusations. He gave sermon illustrations that objectified young women. All these are horrific things. And that's what we're dealing with right now. <clears throat> It's all over the internet. It's on the front page of the, Wall Street, of the Washington Times. So security, protection, accountability. Um, Hebrews 13 says this, verse 7. Um, regarding leadership, it says this. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's an amazing statement. So you, you look at leaders and elders, and, and as, as you look at them, and as you see the outcome of their way of life, you should be able to imitate their faith. And everyone that I know who's a pastor and elder has clay feet. Don't misunderstand me. We all are sinners, and we deal with sin. But there still is that calling to be able to lead a life that is honoring unto the Lord. In your brokenness, you get off the mat and you trust the Lord. First Peter chapter 5 is an exhortation to men in leadership, and it says this, uh, verse 1 and 2 says, I, I exhort you, I exhort the elders among you as, as a fellow elder and a witness 
to the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. Not as a compulsion or a compulsion, but willingly as God would have you to do so. And then a shepherd protects, guards, doctrinally watches over the church. That's what shepherds are called to do. In the book of Acts, Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And he says, you, you know, you're never going to see my face again. And they're weeping. And it's a very touching passage in Acts chapter 20. And Paul says this, he says, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or shepherds. Be careful to, to, to care for the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. It is an ominous, weighty calling. And once again, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to leap and provide and protect those under their care. So just a few comments. Children, what a heritage. What a great heritage. I think of our church, I think of our vacation Bible school week after next. We're going to have 700... To 7.30, kids, workers here. Crazy. I think of Sunday morning when we have 400-ish, 350 kids aged birth through fifth grade. And the incredible man power and woman power it takes to pull that off. I think of Palmetto Christian Academy, our wonderful school. And next year we may have 670, 680 students here at Palmetto Christian Academy where children are being taught to think biblically. And what an incredible responsibility it is to have a place of safety and security and to protect our children. In Mark chapter 9, there's a very, it's really humorous. There's a story Starting verse 33, they, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, Christ asked them, what were you men discussing on the way? They were having this discussion. They thought they were out of earshot of Jesus. It says, but they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. That, that's a very embarrassing conversation to have in the presence of Christ. I mean, that just, that dog don't hunt at all. And Christ sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and a servant to all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So what he's saying there is that when you receive a child in the name of the living God, you're receiving Jesus. I mean, that's, that's a powerful statement. And then later he says this. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow. It's a delightful and weighty thing to love and teach children. I love our kids. I, mean, I had the best time. I, I was just in an early service. I went to the worship center. There was a family sitting there with a brand new little baby they've adopted two weeks ago. Man, she is so pretty. And I thought, wow. And then just came in and saw a young woman I've known since she was born. She's getting married next week. And I thought, what a joy to see generational people grow up and, 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 and hopefully come to know Christ and walk in the way of the Lord. It is such a joy. It's such a weighty obligation. See, church, one of the things about having a biblical worldview is you get it. We're not Pollyannish. We understand the sinfulness of man. We understand the Bible teaches there are evil people. We understand the second Timothy chapter three, verse six says, uh, he says, you know, be on your guard. There are certain men who will worm their ways into the homes of weak-willed women who were laden with sin, and they will intentionally seduce them. There, there are people who are preying on the grieving or the hurting or the young. And so we've got to be vigilant. There was an article, I was doing some research, there was an article that said, uh, <clears throat> what, what can we do to protect our children at church? So, I was, okay, let me just read them to you. Six things, very quickly. Went to Steve Tuck and I said, we're doing these. He said, oh yeah, we're doing these and more. I said, okay. Number one, every worker from nursery through high school has to undergo a background check before serving. We do that. Everybody. We've had people say, oh, I've been here 30 years, I'm going to do a background check. Yep. I had to do a background check. I passed. I'm glad. Number two, develop a check-in and check-out policy in your children's areas. We do that. It's a burden. Some of you guys are standing in line, waiting, 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 but we're trying to protect our children. Thirdly, above, be above reproach in your leadership choices, especially regarding off-campus trips. And we go beyond what they say here. Steve Tucker's done a great job. Number four, create a security protocol for those who you, you may be aware of who have been documented as child molesters or predators. We do that. Five, develop a security team. Check. Six, build a buffer window of time in your volunteer protocols before they can serve. It's, it's, it's usually six months. We do that because we want our children as much as we can under the mercy of God to be safe. So I'm saying that to parents living this, in this age. We want to protect our children. Many of you are aware of the situation that happened at Michigan State University. New York Times article dated May the 16th, last week, two weeks ago. Michigan State just settled uh, with 332 victims for $500 million. All were abused by a doctor named Lawrence Nasser. The present president is an interim named John Engler, the former governor of the state, says, you know, we are scrambling to pay for this. They have a $2.3 billion endowment, 
but the law stipulates you can't use that endowment to pay for lawsuits. So he says, we're going to have to have a tax in the state of Michigan. We're going to have to raise tuition. Both of them are not good options. One person said, I think the number of being so large sends a message that it is undeniable that something really terrible happened here and that Michigan State owns it. A lawyer for one of the women said, when you have to pay half a billion dollars, it's an omission of responsibility. And let me tell you, the thing that breaks my heart as I've read about this is that Dr. Nasser was reported to, to people in authority 20 years ago, and they did nothing. They circled the wagons. And so he abused Olympic athletes. 332 young women. It's an incredible story. Penn State University. Their settlement was $230 million. There was a coach there who abused young boys. And the horrific thing is that 11 years before the story broke, he was discovered by an assistant coach and reported to somebody in authority. We're not sure who it was. I'm not going to speculate. And they did nothing. They circled the wagons. So please understand, we will not do that. That is an ungodly response. And please understand, according to Mark chapter 9, there is a split special place in hell for people who abuse children. We want to be transgenerational, which is a joy, but also is responsibility. The second thing, women. 1 Peter 3, 7 has this statement. It says, it says uh, husbands, live with your wives in the way of knowledge as, as with the weaker partner. And, and throughout church history, it was assumed that physically weaker is implied. Generally speaking, men are stronger than women. And any man that uses his strength to belittle, berate, and bully women and children is a buffoon. That when you read the Bible, and I hear me say, well, my wife needs to submit. And I say, man, just read the Bible. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. Boom, bat, boom. It's a servant leadership. It's the leadership that on the night he was betrayed caused the Lord of all glory, God in the flesh, to take a wash basin and a towel and to crawl on the floor and to wipe off the feet of his disciples and act that the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the low servants did. I mean, the most menial servant washed feet. The upper guys, I'm not going to touch his feet. And he comes to Peter, and it's a great, and Peter says, Lord, you will never wash my feet. They got pig urine on it, for example. They got fecal matter on it. I mean, you're not going to do that. You're and Jesus says, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. And he says, said, Lord, wash my head and my, and my hands. So it's servant leadership, and it's praising, and it's pace setting, and it's protecting, and it's pleading. And so I gave you this part of this two weeks ago, the statement on abuse from the Council on Biblical Manhood and Woman, a great little statement. Let me just read three things. I, we believe that abuse can be defined as an act or failure to act, resulting failure to act. Hear that? 
an imminent risk, serious injury, death, physical, emotional, or sexual harm or exploitation of another person. We condemn all forms of physical, sexual, and or verbal abuse. We believe that the Bible teaches on, teaching on relationships between men and women does not support but condemns abuse. We believe that abuse is not only a sin, but it is also a crime. It is destructive and it is evil. Abuse is a hallmark of the devil and is in direct opposition to the purposes of God. We believe the local church and Christian ministries have a responsibility to establish safe environments. So recently one of my, uh, a man that I respect very much, uh, has come out that he gave some horrible advice and he did, did not report something that should have been reported. And so you have a statement in the uh, worship guide from Al Moeller, who's from Southern Seminary. This man is at Southwestern Seminary, and this is what Moeller writes. But the same Bible that reveals the complementarian pattern of male leadership in the home and the church also reveals God's steadfast and unyielding concern for the abused and the threatened, the suffering, and the fearful. There is no excuse whatsoever for the abuse of any form, verbal, emotional, physical, spiritual, or sexual. The Bible warns so deep clearly of those who would abuse power and weaponize authority. Every Christian church and every pastor and every church member must be ready to protect any of God's children threatened by abuse and must hold every abuser fully accountable. The church and any institution or ministry serving the church must be ready to assure safety and support to any woman or child or vulnerable one threatened by abuse. That's well stated. It's a sad day for my seminary. So, safety, protection, accountability. We talked about accountability. You read these books, these articles, I read some books. The common thread running through them is this, uh, circle the wagons. It's too embarrassing to disclose. And so for 20 years in Michigan State, 20 years, for decades in the Catholic Church, in Boston and Los Angeles, for 11 years at Penn State. So let me give you a story that was my we need to have a light moment, but so this is my attempt at lifting the statement. So September 1988, <clears throat> September the 17th, 1988, the first ever game at Clemson University between two top 10 teams took place. Florida State came to town, and Florida State was led by, by this guy. Nope, this guy. There you go. Yep. This guy, Deion Sanders. Now, before the game, I didn't like Deion Sanders. He was called Neon Deion. He was kind of braggadocious. Well, he was braggadocious, and he did victory dances. I can't do it. I throw my back out. And, um, but, but Deion Sanders scored an incredible touchdown to tie the game 21 to 21. Clemson stalled, kicked the ball. There's 90 seconds to go. This is painful. This is so painful. 90 seconds to go, fourth and four. Florida State had the ball on their own 21-yard line. Fourth and four. Their own 21-yard line. 
They fake the punt, punt Ruski. Fullback gets it and runs to the one-yard line to kick a field goal, the last play of the game, 124-21. Breaks your heart. Punt Ruski. And Dion, I just thought, I don't like Dion. Something else happened that weekend. The next day, my daughter was born, but I was still grieving as I welcomed her. And, uh, but but I, I just thought, you know, Dion played professional baseball and football. Great athlete. But just didn't like him. Just a little bit too cocky, too, too full of himself. Also, during this time, I, and this is during my wilderness years, I was a Dallas Cowboy fan. Now, that's a football team in Texas, professional football team. And I went to seminary in the Dallas area, and I was there in the Tom Landry, Roger Staubach era. This is way too much information for some of you guys, but that was a glorious. I mean, Roger Staubach and Tom Landry. I, I still had that overhang, and I was still a Cowboy fan. And during this whole anti Dion phase, he became free agent, and this is what happened. No, this is what happened. That's it. He became a cowboy. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not embellishing. As soon as he signed with the cowboys, this is what I thought. I've misunderstood Dion all these years. <laughs> he's not that bad. In fact, I've heard he's become a believer. So, man, you know, he's, he's, really, he's really okay. Now, you see, you say, well, that's, <clears throat> yeah, that shows you how shallow I am. I know that. But it also shows you how subjectively oriented we can be. But see, when you have the Scripture, you walk under the authority of the Bible. Let me give you this example. Bear with me. There are people here who remember the Bill Clinton presidency. And they remember the 1992 general election when President Bush was running against Governor Clinton. And they remember all the reports about Clinton abusing women that, that seemingly were... And they spoke out against that. And then they remember the, the time in the White House when Bill Clinton was acted inappropriate toward a young woman and, and, and they legitimately said this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Absolutely. <clears throat> Here's my concern. I can show you the press releases. Some of those same spokespeople are now giving President Trump a pass because there's an R beside his name. That's wrong. That's wrong. If I had a chance to talk to President Trump, I, I, I don't anticipate that happening. I would say to him, President Trump, thank you for being pro-life. Thank you for Judge Gorsuch. Thank you for nominating conservative jurists all throughout our judiciary who understand values in life. Thank you. Personal opinion. Thank you for moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Should have done that in 1948. But Mr. President, repent of your past sin. Repent of your abusive attitude towards women because you've objectified women. And don't tweet that you're not as guilty as person X. That's not the issue. The issue is you stand before God. And if you claim to be a follower of Christ, may your repentance be as well known as anything else. That's what I say. So I'm, I'm not here to browbeat anybody, but just to say, we stand under the authority of the Bible. Be very careful that you don't circle the wagons. If it's your alma mater, if it's your political party, if it's your ethnicity, if it's your socioeconomic group, we stand under the authority of the Lord Christ. So let me just mention this issue of accountability very quickly. 
In 1 Timothy, it talks about how to, how, to, how to carry this out, for example, with elders. And it says this, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except that it is on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So there, there's, a, there's a pattern here. So he says, you know, based upon Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, chapter 17, you'd never entertain an accusation against a brother or sister or an elder unless it's from two or three credible witnesses. Because, you know, character assassination is a horrible thing. But if there are two or three credible witnesses... You bring it to the elder. And if you read it in context, if, if he repents, you go on. There's still ramifications of his sin, but if he repents, you go forward. But if he persists in sin, if he says, none of your business, it's my life, I'm going to do my thing, I'm going to go forward. If he persists in sin... The scripture says, rebuke him in the presence of all. So what does that mean? I think it means this. You stand up in the assembly of God's people and you say, this elder who's been set apart for the purposes of shepherding and loving our people is involved in unrepentant, ongoing sin that is breaking the heart of God and hurting the witness of the church. That's what you do. And the result is, so that all may stand in fear. Everyone there says, wow, this is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. We don't circle the wagons. We don't sweep it under the carpet. We address it. And then to add power to a statement, says, I charge you. Verse 21, I charge you. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, the elect angels, to, to keep these rules without prejudging, which is sinful, because you don't know, doing nothing from partiality. In other words, don't circle the wagons. There's no statement. Blood is thicker than what? Water. And we think what that means is that, I mean, family is first. That's a lie. Families stand under the authority of Scripture. Blood is not thicker than water. We stand before the God who is all glorious and kind and good, and He spoke to us in His Word, and He wants us to flourish as we know Him. So, That's our cultural moment. Once again, in the Old Testament, there's a term, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. There are people in our worship services today who've been abused. I talked to several after the first service. And it's hard. And it's destructive. And so often we can silently suffer when the church should be a hospital that gives medicine. 
And our commitment is a place of protection and safety. Protection and safety. There are others here who may be in a relationship where you feel like you're being abused. And we, we want to walk with you, protection and safety. We want to protect you. We want to give safety. We want to understand that at the heart of true leadership is the desire to protect and care for those they're responsible for. We want to understand that, 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 that when Jesus says it would be better for someone to take a millstone and hang it around their neck and to jump into the deepest part of the sea rather than cause a little one to stumble, that he meant that. And we take that seriously. And we're not about covering up and sweeping it under. We, we, we want to deal with things. Let's pray. Lord, we are at a, <clears throat> a place where we're just inundated with uh, these issues. And we don't want to walk in fear. We don't want to walk in a trepidation. We want to be people who rejoice that there's a shepherding king and the shepherding king shepherds his people through the local church by just providing and teaching and protecting. And Lord, we want to do that. We don't, we, we don't, we don't want to be uh, people that don't address issues. And, um, but we want to stand with vigilance and guard and love people around us. And Lord, we pray against uh, predators that would try to harm our children. We pray against men who would twist the scripture to make them look like they're the kings of the home instead of the servant leaders of the home. Uh, we just we want to be your people, and we want to taste the sweetness of Christ, and we want to respond to these things out of tasting the goodness of Christ. So lead us, Lord, we pray. I pray for those who have been emotionally or physically abused, that Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, would be endemic to their spirit. We just trust you, Lord. God, bless our children's departments. Bless Vacation Bible School. Bless Palmetto Christian Academy. Bless our middle school and high school ministries. May we be people who love and care for the coming generations to the glory of your name. I bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.